Like spiritually speaking, the dreaming is, you know, the way that we have responsibility to ourselves and to others and it involves caring for country and for community um, and for ourselves so that we can give back to those things. And I think when I'm in alignment with the dream, when I'm in alignment with purpose, the things I create in the world, which take many forms, it might be art or writing or consulting or acting or voiceovers, whatever it is, um, when they're in alignment with that purpose and with that flow, then what I'm creating feels fulfilling. And it feels like it leaves things better than when I arrived to them and that's a good thing. Kia and welcome to Paper Fox Radio. My name is Az Roberts. Paper Fox Radio is a collection of intimate stories and interviews about how we navigate change and who we become along the way. In the last couple of weeks, I've been doing a lot of reading and thinking about the environment. It was just sort of a pull in that direction. The thoughts I'm having are around what more can we do? as individuals, as societies and things, because it feels like we are at a critical point in our time. We really need to be doing something because the damage is becoming irreversible. And I'm not just talking about the environment, the waters, the soil. I'm also talking about how we treat each other as people. And it feels like there's a lot of unconsciousness that we have in the world today. We move through the world without thought. We consume without thought. We treat each other like cheap transactions and without any real consideration what the consequence of our actions and decisions are. And the more my eyes are open to this being more purposeful, thoughtful, the more I see of this unconsciousness and especially with what we're seeing on the news now about Russia and the Ukraine and I wonder how that gets to happen in this day and age but that's where my head's at at the moment how can I be doing more how can we be doing more as people how can we be more conscious with our choices and how we treat each other and how we respect the earth and our communities, so that in seven generations' time, if we even make it that far, we've actually got you know, a planet left. It's a bit heavy, but I wanted to share that with you because that's what I'm thinking and that's where my head's at. And it's a, yeah, I think it's important. Today's guest is Curly Saunders. She's a proud Gunai woman, award winning writer and artist. Her books, the Incredible Freedom Machines, Kindred, and Bindi have all been widely celebrated and have won a stack of awards between them. As you'll hear, she's a captivating storyteller, creative, strong, and charismatic. She's a leader and a voice for her people. In 2020, Curly was awarded the New South Wales Aboriginal Woman of the Year Award. But she's not just lighting the way for her people but all First Nations people, all Australians and all Indigenous people. Curly is a voice 
for the whole community. I leave you with my conversation with Curly Saunders. Enjoy. We were actually, hi, welcome. Hey. Thank you for joining. Hey. Uh, it's good to see your face today. You um, too. I'm here on um, Thottawal Country today. Where am I Where am I yarning to you from? Um, in Neutral Bay. Nice. Gadigal Country. Gadigal Country. That's it. Thank mm. you. Thank you. You're I dropped well. the ball on that. <laughs> That's okay. We're all, I think we're all learning, you know. We are. So interesting story. I thought we'd start with how you and I came to be talking on this show through our friend Matt Otley, the illustrator. Oh my God, isn't he spectacular? He's launching his book tomorrow. Um, and if you haven't read The Tree of Ecstasy and Unbearable Sadness, you should totally go get yourself a copy because he's marvellous. Have you read it already? No. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm um, I'm in home isolation because my housemate has COVID, so um, I won't be able to go to the launch. So I hope someone can go for me because it's, yeah, it's going to be spectacular. Yeah, well, we're, we're definitely going. He's actually, I'm going to meet him in real life after this and uh, we're going to do some recording for him. So special. I'm, yeah, I'm super jealous. Um, if you don't know Matt's work, he's uh, published, I think it's something like over 70 books and they're published in languages all around the world. And he's also a synesthete and a composer. And yeah, he's remarkable. You should definitely check out Matt's work. And speaking of talented individuals, there's yourself. And it was the um, Incredible Freedom Machines book that I initially read and stumbled across both of your work. And so I interviewed Matt on the show a little while ago. Yeah. And uh, he said I should totally speak to Curly. <laughs> and here we are. But what I thought would be good, not to take too much time up, but to what was your experience of the Incredible Freedom Machines, like where did that story come from for you being the author? Yeah, so um, I was riding my motorbike through the Royal National Park. I had a Ducati at the time um, and it was this sense of joy and freedom that came from being on a bike that um, was bringing so much to my life at the time. I was battling anxiety and depression and um, getting out on my bike got me out on country and connected me to other like-minded people and Oh, I, the world just felt so alive, you know, when you're moving at pace <laughs> through rainforest. And I came back and sat in a cafe on Mount Kira um, on Tharawal country here and started writing and this poem poured out of my leathers and onto the page and was about this experience of, um, of freedom and joy and elation. And, you know, not many girls in the area that I grew up in rode motorbikes. Um, and at the time, women in Middle Eastern countries weren't still able to get their license. That's since changed in some places. And so I wanted to write about feminism and freedom for young people. And I teed up an email with Matt. Do Matt be my illustrator? Not knowing him, just admiring his work from afar as a teacher. And yeah, he took the work to his publisher at Scholastic and the rest is history. So I'm pretty spoiled yeah, to have worked with Matt for my first book. And I love sharing that story because so many people reach out to me asking about becoming a writer. And mm. I, you know, this is proof that anyone can do it. You just have to believe that you can and reach out to your networks and um, practice and refine and ask for help. And yeah, away you go. I want to touch on the, you know, maybe a bit of the anxiety and depression that you were going through that you were dealing with at the time. 
what was that related to? Yeah, I mean, I think it was just um, lots of things. Um, growing up in, so I grew up in the Southern Highlands and I'd not long after that, I studied um, at the University of Wollongong. I studied primary teaching with honours and started my first teaching job um, in an Illawarra school. And I was feeling really overwhelmed with the workload as a new teacher and also this sense of worth of like, you know, I'd topped my class and um, and I'd always been a really high achiever and I was grappling for the first time with that, like, oh, my gosh, can I actually do this? Do I have the supports in place to do this? And um, if there's any new teachers listening, you know how challenging <laughs> those first five years of your career are. Um, So there were those things. There was also dealing with cultural identity, being a fair-skinned blackfella in a school and being asked lots of questions about teaching and cultural identity and trying to be a role model for my young people as well. The kids in my class, I felt a real responsibility. So I think a combination of all of those things with a lot of stress and having just recently moved away from my community to living in a new community in a new place where I hadn't started sports, so I didn't have a lot of people around me. And yeah, just grappling with all those big, big things that you do when you finish uni and go on to your big job. So a lot of moving parts there, hey? Yeah, which I think it seems like that's a common thing when I talk with other friends or peers who have experienced anxiety and depression that, you know, it's never maybe just one thing. It's a combination of things um, and it takes a combination of strategies to move out of that. Yeah. And Out of that was born this amazing book that you wrote for your first uh, book, yeah? Mm, Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it, it, like, that's one way of healing was for me, there was riding my motorbike, there was, I started playing a team sport on the coast, um, so I met more people, I started making new friends, I was eating really well and exercising a lot and was journaling, and journaling is where my books came from. Oh, there's so many good things. Like, um, are you journaling... Is it just a mixture of, I was going to say words, <laughs> is it a mixture of poetry and just normal as we understand journaling to be? Because a lot of your work is poetry, right? Yeah. So poetry underpins everything for me in my writing. I think all of, so I write poetry, picture books, plays, prose, opinion pieces. It kind of depends on the day as to what genre my writing falls into, but Poetry is the backbone of all of it, really. And Dr. Tamron Bennett says we should live our poems, and I really agree with that. She was my mentor at Red Room Poetry and um, an incredible poet in her own right. You should go read her. But, yeah, I guess my journaling looks like a combination of – they're always very messy. (laughs) They're a combination of little sketches, poetry, just a lot of I'm feeling, I'm thinking. Mm. You know, just just kind of reflective statements about what I'm experiencing um, that help me process and get underneath feelings or thoughts or ideas or narratives which maybe do or don't serve me personally. And then from that, poems tend to be this metaphorical exploration of my human experience so that other people can relate to it. Is this all written like by hand or are you using like a word processor or something to capture it or...? Yeah, it depends on the day. Um, Unfortunately, because of the nature of my work. So my day to day is um, a writer, an artist and a consultant. So depending on the day, I spend a lot of time on a screen and I actually find that really messes with my sleep and with my well-being. (laughs) So sometimes they're handwritten, sometimes they're on a screen. Sometimes I record conversations with myself on Otter. 
or other awesome. kind of dictation. Yeah. Or, you know, you can get apps that you can scan written, handwritten notes and they type them out for you. I think technology has evolved in such incredible ways now that we can be writing without physically writing, typing onto our computer. And I feel really lucky that those things exist because I think they're more in line with the oral nature of storytelling, which traditionally and culturally is ours. I'm actually looking at my journal. It's in front of me right Mm. now. And I go between using like um, Notion and things like Evernote as ways Mm. to capture my writing. But I've since felt this pull to move back to like a written journal where I can sketch and draw and just put blah on the page. And it's a lot more, I feel it's a lot more expressive, but I feel like the stuff that comes out of me on paper is, I don't know, it comes from a deeper place than if I'm sitting Mm -hmm. down and writing on my computer. I don't know what that is. It's because sometimes I pick up my old journals from like 10 years ago. (laughs) Are they fun? Oh, and freaky. (laughs) Like the thing that trips me up is you look back and you go, I'm still doing that. I'm still that same, you know, there's so much that's evolved, but there's so many things that you're still doing and and that's kind of scary at the same time. A hundred percent. But then there's those surprising moments where you go, fuck, I wasn't so stupid after all. Like you write some really profound stuff to yourself in these moments and forget about it. And then you look back a few years and it's quite surprising what you can write. Absolutely. I um, I think there's something very somatic with what you were saying about writing. You know, you're actually moving your body. There's an experience attached to it that is um, texturally different. You can feel the paper. You hear the sound of it as you turn a page. There's that scratching kind of um, AMSR sound of like a pen on paper and or pencil on paper. And I find the experience to be more cathartic and creative when you are writing on paper. But it's just a lot easier when, yeah, the idea of writing a novel, which I'm, I'm kind of working at now um, and not typing that out <laughs> and just handwriting it and then having to transcribe it. I think, oh, gosh, that would be awful. But I know older Aboriginal writers who handwrite everything and then have somebody transcribe their work for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really lovely thing too, but no one could decipher my chicken scroll. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so much to unpack. <laughs> So you got into you got into teaching. What was the draw to teaching for you? Yeah, I think I was always going to be a teacher. I had a a really an early experience of really severe racism from a teacher in a private school and then my parents changed me to a public school and the teacher that I had, Mr. Milburn, who features in Bindi, was just all heart and he really made me believe that I could be anything I dreamed of being and it's a life mantra that stuck with me and I remember him saying that to me. And um, I wanted to be that role model for other young Aboriginal kids, but all kids of minority backgrounds and all backgrounds, because Mm. I feel like there's so much against a little person (laughs) when they start moving in the world. There's, you know, when you start your teacher training, they talk about, you know, having a bag and people taking things out of the bag as you move along, your sense of worth, your sense of identity, your confidence, um, And I think teachers have a real knack of building up the confidence of a young person to enable them to feel like they can do anything in the world. And when you have that belief in yourself that you can, then you're willing to find the means to do all of the work to figure out what that is. And so 
yeah, I, I felt really drawn to that idea of teaching. I'm also surrounded by teachers. Yeah, my auntie Val um, is an auntie Velma Mulcahy, is an elder in our community on Gunungara country where I grew up and has been a really integral teacher in our community. And then my pop taught at TAFE, my aunt teaches at TAFE and uni. And yeah, I think I've just always been surrounded by teachers and encouraged into that. And so you went into teacher training. So that path was sort of there for you. And then what was the, what was the transition into writing? Yeah. So (laughs) such a good question. When I was studying my teacher training, I spent a lot of time in the resources part of the uni. So reading through kids' picture books and I fell in love with them. And um, I've always been really drawn to picture books as a genre because there is this interrelation of text and image, so this multimodal nature of reading, which I find personally very enticing. And so while I was studying, I was also reading all these kids' resources and writing my own books. And before I'd submitted anything to Matt Oldley, I sent something to Sean Tan, who uh, is another illustrator you should totally check out, an artist, and read his work too. Yeah, I, I just wanted to be and do that. So I spent a lot of time writing my assignments, but then, you know, had my head down in these books, journaling and creating things. And it kind of happened unintentionally. I'd published The Incredible Freedom Machines and then just kept writing. And I at that time I'd had Yvette Pishoglian, who's another incredible author and friend, as my mentor. And she said, Curls, it's time to take this seriously. You've got to take it seriously. At which point I put my head down and, and really did and got a few more books under my belt and signed with publishers and, yeah, maintained that daily practice of writing every day, showing up to my desk every day. Then after teaching, I moved into, I left the classroom and became a senior education officer at the Department of Education, encouraging other teachers into the classroom, um, particularly people who were working in, with Aboriginal kids or of Aboriginal background and those working in the STEM area. And after that, I went and worked at Red Room Poetry. I managed the Aboriginal um, cultural consulting kind of projects, I suppose, in their education programs. Fell in love with poetry and that was it. I was freelancing after that. <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't get me back to a day job. I just wanted to write. On the subject of poetry, when you know, you reached out and said, hey, well, there was the opportunity because we're recording with Matt later today. And the opportunity to have our conversation came up and I was like, I better read something of yours, something else of yours. <laughs> and then I saw Bendy, which was um, very highly awarded and looked like an absolute scorcher of a book. When I picked it up, I wasn't sure what it was going to be about really. I kind of knew it was about an 11-year-old girl from what I'd seen, but I didn't know it was poetry. And historically me and poetry don't mix it's something I run a mile from I've never really got poetry even like lyrics to songs and things like that sometimes I really struggle with them to extract the meaning of what's being said so when I picked up Bendy and it was a poem I was a little bit like how am I going to get through this but I was super super surprised at how and probably given that it's written for uh what's the age group it's written for yeah, so it's a middle grade book. Kids around Bindi's age, I suppose, are a little bit younger. Yeah, so it made it really easy for me to read, <laughs> which was good. And I loved it. And I was really blown away by the book. And um, I was just... Thanks. Yeah, no, it was, it was bloody cool. And I Thanks. think I was really touched by 
how much wisdom that this little girl had in her and around her and her community. And I know we kind of touched on this the other day when we caught up on the phone, but it was, it really opened my eyes about how much we need to be paying attention to our country and our environment and our elders and all of the knowledge that's, you know, gone before us and stuff. And I wondered if you could maybe say a few things around that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, That's a beautiful wrap for my book. I appreciate it. So Bindi is a girl growing up on Gunungara country. She's growing up there with her family and it's about her life experience surviving a bushfire that rips through their town. And at the time that I wrote Bindi, the 2019-2020 fires were erupting on my grandmother's country, so Gunai land, my mum's birthplace, mum's country, Ewan land, and also Gunungara country where I grew up. And I just felt this overwhelming sense of um, children need to have a story that speaks to this experience because they're experiencing it too. And they're going to go back to school and we're just going to get on with it. Um, And I I wanted to mark and honour and give my love and respect to young people who also experience traumatic things, but maybe don't have equal ways of unpacking them um, as us adults do. And then I, so I wanted to cultivate that and also talk about the way that we care for countries. So culturally, the different practices that are in place around firekeeping. And I've been really lucky to learn from Adrian Webster and his family, and who's a custodian down the coast, and also Jacob Morris, who are two fathers who do a lot of caring for country with um, fire sticks and lands councils and local community alongside Uncle Vic Stephenson. And so I wanted to talk to that. And then I really wanted to call in an understanding of what a school would look like if young people were engaged with an elder during their school hours, as well as outside of school. And so Bindi has this kind of beautiful relationship with um, with this auntie who comes to visit them, Auntie Lindy, and they plant shearics for the black cockatoo. And she forms this relationship with the black cockatoo. And it's said that the black cockatoo brings the rain, you know, and maybe you've seen that or witnessed that in your own experience with that beautiful Bujan bird there. Yeah, she rides horses, she plays hockey, she's an everyday kid and that was really an integral part of this story that everyone can be involved in this. It's not outside of us to all care for country. We all have a responsibility to her and we can all be learning about country and community and Aboriginal culture locally where we live. And it is something kind of subtle and interwoven into Mob's everyday life experience. It's a seamless thing. It's part of who we are. And, um, yeah, I wanted to mirror that for young Aboriginal people who who go to school now. There's this real feeling that we need to be doing more as just everyday, every everybody, basically, where we have so much in the world that's going on at the moment you know, especially like when we look at what's happening in Russia and Ukraine Mm -hmm. and going back to 2019 and 2020, those fires that you spoke of, it made me reconsider like maybe Aussie's not a great place to live just because it felt like the people who we charge with leadership and stuff are not really giving a stuff. Well, it seemed like they weren't really giving a stuff about supporting anyone and stuff it just was a really terrible time to be here and I think the last few years has been really unsettling's not not enough of a word it's been really super unsettling yeah to live in this world there's so much chaos going on and 
I've definitely been thinking about we live like there's some of us that are moving through this world quite consciously and paying attention with our eyes open and listening. And then there seems to be a whole raft of people who are doing things unconsciously and literally burning this earth and its resources and, you know, raping it for money and things. And it's just super, super, super depressing. It's easy to feel really powerless. But then we overlook our elders and all indigenous people and communities who have been here for literally forever (laughs) (laughs) and who have so much knowledge and who know how the land works and how nature works. Like that was one question I wanted to ask you is when Aborigine talk about country, it's like they talk about it, that they are part of the country, like they're not living on they're almost like living with country. Is that correct? Is mm. that a correct way to look at it? Yeah, it's more I of guess. A, more of a partnership. Yeah, it definitely feels like a partnership. The The greatest term that we can use for Aboriginal people is Aboriginal or First Nations or beyond that, the cultural community that they come from. So when people are like, who else, who's your family? I say, I'm going to, um, you know, with ties onto you and country where mum was born, I was born on Gunagara country, pop sides from Birupai family. So if you're wondering how to refer to Aboriginal people, um, Aboriginal is a word used for a collective, I guess, all of us, but we'd prefer <laughs> to be known as, as the family or community that we come from. Um, and so I guess my experience growing up on Gunagara country or with ties onto you and country there, and now more ties onto Gunai country too, all of the spiritual teachings that I've had help me understand that Mother Earth or Gamwang Dauri is is mother. She's um, who we're born from, who we return to when we pass, and she's who we have a responsibility to care for while we're here. So um, it doesn't feel like we're living on her <laughs> so much as with her. And then it means that when you have a relationship with someone or something, you're far more inclined to want to care for it, right? If you mm. look at her like she's like, she's your mother you would never willingly harm her and I think it shifts the way that we move around country I don't just walk up to trees or ever just break something off a tree I ask for permission first and it has to usually be for a use you know I need this I need this plant for the followers who are doing the smoking or can I use this to um this piece of fruit can I have that so there's a relationship and a conversation that happens. It's not just taking for the sake of it. And I think that's one thing that really feels challenging to witness in the media and in the world is when people are, like you say, just reaping, <laughs> just taking from country without mm-hmm. an understanding of reciprocity that you must give back and that there is a relationship there and that it's an ongoing relationship. It doesn't just impact me. It impacts my babies and their babies and so on and so forth. In First Nations cultures overseas, they talk about, you know, seven generations and that means making decisions now for the next seven generations and I think we could be making far better decisions now for the future. So before I picked up Bendy, I read Let My People Go Surfing by the guys that founded Patagonia. Mm, Isn't it beautiful? Yeah, it's a fantastic book and it illustrates just where my thinking is at the moment with regards to the relationship we have with each other and with the land and things like that. But they, they definitely talk about that seventh generation thinking and how that might change the way we make decisions and imagine people 
seven generations from now being affected by the decisions we make today and how might that change the way that we act. At the moment, it's really hard to look down the line seven generations even and even believe there'll be seven generations to come at this rate. Um, it's really scary. It's pretty so. scary, isn't it? Yeah, and like, I mean, I know you've got a little one as and I'm an auntie to a nephew and lots of second cousins. And when I look at them, I think, how are we going to make sure that country's okay for them, even just this next generation, let alone seven? So I think yeah. it does put a real onus on everything that you do being a lot more responsible. And I guess for me, some it can feel overwhelming, I agree. Some of the things that I've shifted towards are stuff that people are already doing, like making sure that you're not using single-use plastic, um, making sure that you're regenerative in your practices. So put your compost into your veggie patch, um, grow some of your own veggies, feed the chooks with all your scraps, get, use their eggs, um, have a smaller footprint, use locally sourced, um, locally grown organic veggies and materials, Choose how you go with your electricity and your power and support, you know, renewable energy. It's a real thing that we need to shift and then lobbying in your local community and beyond so that we're not continuing to harm this country but all countries with our pollution and with the way that we seek power. And then beyond that, how can we be making sure and holding to account the powers that be when they are mining country for minerals so that we can support having our electric cars and our iPhones here or overseas, how are we doing that so that country is cared for afterwards? And taking a small action, a 1% action, a tiny thing you can change in your own practice will give you back that power and make you feel like you can do it and it will make you have conversations with people around you and, you know, there's hope. There's total hope. We can't get lost in the doom and gloom of it because if we do, we'll just sit here sad and nothing will change for those generations ahead of us. Hey, you know what's good? You're good. You know what else is good? Subscribing. So subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. Give it a rating, a good rating, an astoundingly beautiful rating, and share it because sharing is caring. And sharing and rating and subscribing all goes a hell of a long way to keeping this thing afloat. So... From the bottom of my heart, thank you. In terms of the impact that this book, so you won, was it New South Wales Aboriginal Woman of the Year 2020, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, with the books and your writing having so much success, what sort of weight does that put on your shoulders? Mm, I'm, I'm, that's such a good question as I've been recently listening to a lot of Ben Crow. And if you don't know Ben Crow, he's a mindset coach behind Dylan Olcott and Ash Barty and Steph Gilmore and a bunch of other athletes. Um, and he has this great app called Mojo and it's been really helping me ground again in my purpose. And, um, I think the times where I get lost in any kind of accolades or I'm doing something for an outcome are the times where I get bogged down in it and I feel overwhelmed and stressed and the times where I'm in flow with purpose that want to create something in the world that provokes change for justice and for the betterment of country and community well then I know that I'm on the right path so it's lovely to have 
accolades um you know validation is always nice but I think the internal validation of getting things done that take care of country and community and that create a better place leave the world world better than when I arrived that feels like a really really good thing um so yeah it's interesting I grew up playing a lot of sport and the idea of external validation for me is something that I'm really rolling with at the moment and I'm it's something that comes up a lot with social media you know this this idea that people are paying attention to your life or (laughs) that you have to leave legacy or have impact every day it can be a real contributor to I think the opposite not getting anything done yeah it's it's definitely something that I'm struggling with with like this podcast as an example is something I put a lot of effort into and a lot of passion into and having to stop myself looking at metrics at those external metrics versus what are the internal drivers and just focusing on those internal drivers for me is a is is a regular thing that I arm wrestle with yeah it's good to hear you talk about those external pressures like expectations from you as yeah, well. 100%. I and for me my expectation of myself is far greater than the expectation anybody ever places on me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I'm I'm my biggest critic um and I'm trying to learn to be my biggest fan not for some kind of grandiosity but because I think I'm far better equipped to deliver beautiful things in the world when I'm self-compassionate. And in Australia we have this tall poppy syndrome which wants to shut down you know the beauty that we see in each other and and laugh at it or or play it down and I think having that love and kindness for yourself and for other people is a beautiful way to change the world aren't we more inclined to have a just society when we're being kind to ourselves and each other yeah yeah it's really really easy to it's like the world's not going to lift you up Mm-mm. And if, if you're not, not going to lift, if you're not going to lift yourself up or keep yourself up or be your own, be in your own corner, then nobody else will. Like the world will be there to support you when things are going good and stuff. And but it's such an artificial way to keep yourself motivated and to m- move or do anything worthwhile, right? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Like spiritually speaking, the dreaming is you know, the way that we have responsibility to ourselves and to others and it involves caring for country and for community um, and for ourselves so that we can give back to those things. And I think when I'm in alignment with the dream, when I'm in alignment with purpose, the things I create in the world, which take many forms, it might be art or writing or consulting or acting or voiceovers, whatever it is, um, when they're in alignment with that purpose and with that flow, then what I'm creating feels fulfilling and it feels like it leaves things better than when I arrived to them. And that's a good thing. This, this comes up in a lot of conversations I'm having at the moment. And it's this idea of forcing and grasping. I've got a tendency, I feel like a broken record at the moment, but I've got a tendency to really force things to happen, to grasp at things like using human power, using human energy to, force an outcome because that's the way I've typically done things versus like you say operating from that place of flow and from those internal sort of motivators and that natural state to get things done 
Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a different it's a different energy and the outcome. Yeah. I think it's it's coming like you say. It's from a place of love and from a place of gratitude versus force. Oh yeah, <laughs> when I um I started my yoga teacher training last year, and um, my teacher Beck Isaacs, who is an absolute guru, she's she's beautiful. Was I was doing like a forty day practice, I'd practice every day for forty days, and there's days where I'd show up to my mat and be like, honestly. <laughs> fuck this. I'm so tired. <laughs> uh, my body hurts. I'm, I don't have the dedication to meditate for an hour and a half or, you know, um, and this mantra or this, this notion that she'd given us this thread was this idea of showing up to practice and releasing from the outcome and just continuously showing up and having practice and letting go of the expectation that it would result in anything. And in that you find so much joy and, what you, when you were talking about forcing and grasping, I've played the same sport for 25 years. I've played hockey for 25 years. And this year for the first time ever, I'm going to play soccer with my cousin and I'm terrified. <laughs> and I sat down with my friends and my family was like, look, I know I appear like a really confident person in the world, but I'm really afraid of trying a new sport. And they said, why are you doing it? And I said, look, I think it'd be really fun. And they said, well, why don't you just connect to that and ground in that? Yeah. And I think when we're grounded in things that bring enjoyment, then we find flow easier. And if we have oh, to force and push and grasp, well, then it is a lot of energy wasted that could be flowing much easier if we were in flow and doing things that we loved and that were in alignment with purpose. Definitely, definitely putting too much weight and expectation on the outcome of MI. Like you've played hockey, what did you say, 25 years? Mm-hmm. At least, yeah. You've, yeah. you've played hockey your whole life, nearly. Yeah, and you're good at it. Like you could play hockey with your eyes cl- closed, mm-hmm. and then you're going to throw yourself into a situation where you're playing a sport that you don't, you, you may not be good at it. <laughs> yeah, but um, it's definitely a whole new experience, and that's really unnerving. In that sense, you're tied up with oh. You're just tied up with, oh, I might not be any good at it or I might make a deck of myself or whatever that is. But if you, like I say, if you go back to fun, am I mm. going out there and having fun? It releases so much pressure and frees you up to actually probably do all right at it because you're a natural right. athlete. Yeah. Like, uh, and, and I know you're the same, right? Like you play a lot of sport and you move your body. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And surfing's been the same for me as well. I've surfed for the last five years. I'm not great at it. I frigging love it. Like the joy of taking a board out and spending three hours in the ocean on a weekday or on the weekend just feels so good. So good in my body. Yeah. I think it's, I guess what I want to offer is encouragement. If it brings you joy, go do it. And there's um something about just being in the ocean or around water full stop, I think is pretty good. Yes. Whether you're surfing or just you know jumping in and out of waves or Whatever that is, like it's it's always cleansing. Oh, 100%. Yeah, we're saltwater people. I spend a lot of time by the ocean. I feel very, you know, when I said before, we are where we come from, where our family comes from and what that landscape is like. Um, we literally eat food from country and that becomes us. There is this beautiful connection I find with the saltwater and I'm sure people all over, whether you're mob or not, have some connection to country some tree some water feature some 
mountain that feels really grounding and strengthening for you. And yeah, I hope your day includes that because it's such an antidote for the drudgery of life. Yeah. Um, in terms of yoga, you know, you're pretty busy. <laughs> um, you keep yourself was, busy. With- I was busy this week until I'm in lockdown. So I've got a whole week free. <laughs> So uh, this is going to be the first of five chats that you and I have this week. <laughs> you're locked down. You've got nothing else to do. Yeah. You're a, you are a busy person outside of being locked down with COVID. So how do you keep your batteries full? Mm, I think um, yarns with friends and family, you know, having a really strong community around you who can call you out on your BS is really important. I see a, she's like a a life doula, a space holder. She's not a clinical psychologist or a counsellor, but um, she just holds space and she's remarkable. So, um, yeah, I think having someone who you can bounce your ideas off and move emotions, thoughts and ideas through your body and make sense of them is a really helpful thing as well. I schedule time to try and be still and find quiet and calm And I also schedule time to move my body. And I find both of those things are also really important, making time to be still and quiet and making time to be energetic and move Mm. things around. And I say no to work that isn't in alignment with my purpose and that doesn't feel good. So the busyness is busy. It's a lot. But it's also work that feels fulfilling and energizing. And if it doesn't, I'm pretty quick to turn around and be like, look, I thought this was good, but it's not. And here's somebody else who might be good for this. Yeah. I also like to work in teams. I'm a freelancer, but doing some design work last year with Starling has really opened up my ideas and understanding of how important it is to work in a team. And so if I get pulled in for a consulting job, I'm always consulting with other team members. I'm never on my own. And I feel like working with other people helps you balance busyness makes you more productive and just feels better while you're doing it. Being an artist, you'd spend a fair bit of time by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, which used to really bother me. uh, When I think when I was in alignment with purpose, when I felt like validation became, came from people outside of me, but the Mm. more that I feel confident in who I am and what I'm here to do, the less I feel lonely when I am on my own and I'm more you know enjoying being in this lush art world and this writing space or this researching place Um, but yeah it can be it can be challenging I've moved into a studio in the last year and I'm working alongside some super talented artists David Cragg he's Bunjalong follower Noni Cragg his sister who's a portrait artist and um, Carla Hayes I think having people around you to yarn with is a helpful thing for rattling around ideas, ideas in collaboration. They feel a bit more full and juicy, and I think they're it's a better place to grow them. Yeah, once you get, I think once you get ideas from out between your ears, and you put them onto paper, or like you were talking about your friend who holds space, right? Sometimes you just need somebody to listen to you and to get whatever thoughts you have in your head out into the open. And to kind of just see them, you know, whether that's to just speak them or sketch them or write them or something, I think that's really, that's a really cathartic experience in itself. Um, 
I work here in a co-working space with people that, you know, have their own businesses and things. And it's just really nice being around other people who are doing things. And I don't know how people have spent the last nearly two years working from, you know, really isolated, working from a home office or without really interfacing with humans apart from, you know, Zoom and stuff like it gets pretty nuts. So yeah, absolutely. And I um, I think that's been a really beautiful thing that's come out of the pandemic is the realisation that we need each other and that we have yeah. to band together to make big change <laughs> because we have been so isolated. We've been living behind smartphones or being yeah. busy and not prioritising human connection. And as a result of the pandemic, we've gone, oh, people matter. <laughs> I got to spend more time with people. Um, or the opposite. I need a dog. <laughs> um, yeah, very good. yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good thing. That's one thing I loved about, um, I mentioned before, I, I did some study with IDEO last year around design mindset and learning how to design a solution in a team and coming to like a big wall with all of these sticky notes and having that yarn and playing off with other people about what an idea could be and having that really broad blue sky mindset. It can be anything. Let's mix and mash all these ideas together has really shifted the way that I collaborate and the way that I create. I'm more inclined to ask people for help and not feel like um, my idea has to remain as it is. It can be flexible and it can be adapted. And I think it's a, it's been a great, asset to my writing that's such a that's such a neat place to get to hey as a young creative i i definitely suffered from i am the creative or i am a creative in a Mm. team or whatever but it's my job to come up with the idea right and if my idea is criticized or if it's you know someone else has a different opinion on it or something like that it actually hurt a lot because i believed that it was my job to come up with a whole idea the idea of yeah, yeah. what a little pressure so, <laughs> yeah like it's ridiculous it's ridiculous and then you get this idea of like um you'll be familiar with things like co-design and stuff right mm-hmm. you're working alongside people who are experiencing the problems themselves mm-hmm. and then your role as a designer is Often it's not to do really any design. It's just to kind of facilitate the conversation of design and to see and help connect the dots of these ideas that emerge. And that's a really sweet part to get to. It's lush, isn't it? And especially like I think when people come to me, I'm often working in, you know, community consultation and they'll say, oh, how can I collaborate with a community or how can I engage a community? I have this problem I want to solve. And I'll always say, well, have you sat down and yarned with them? (laughs) Like a cup of tea and a yarn goes a really long way for understanding the depth and complexity of the problem for the kids in that community, the old people in that community, the community outside of that community. You know, there's there's so many ripples. And, I, yeah, I do feel like co-designing solutions, particularly in Aboriginal and minority communities, is what proper consultation looks like. It's not arriving with the solution, arriving with the idea already fleshed out. It's arriving with your sticky notes and your pen and sitting down and having a yarn and what ideas you have how can we mix and mash these together um what would it look like if we tweaked this thing what's our one percent solution this tiny thing we could change that would have a big impact um what do we not want it to look like you know all of that is 
it's changed the way I work. I feel really grateful to have dipped my toe in, in, you know, human centered design and design thinking. And I'm so excited to keep learning and it just keeps giving, doesn't it? Every time I learn something, I'm like, Oh, I want to know more. Spend hours on the internet researching. (laughs) That's, that was really what kicked off this podcast essentially was how can I do more of the connecting with people? Because I found that the the connecting to people and hearing their story and their um, their needs and their life and understanding who they were behind this, you know, often it was software that you'd be developing or something was far more interesting to me than the actual software we were developing. Um, the solution we were developing, I had this really good experience back in, I think it was 2018, we went to Samoa with Engineers Without Borders and we took... Uh, maybe about 20 or so students, engineering students to Samoa. And the whole thing was is like young engineering students are taught a certain way and they, you know, they're very smart and they come with solutions. And the whole, our whole process over there was to say, it's about really learning what the people, the Samoan people actually need and having a conversation with them. And there's this real tension in the early days that, you know, I need to be coming up with solutions. I need to be fixing things and doing things really, really big. But like what you were talking about with that 1% type solution, you know, identifying that one percenter, it takes a lot of pressure off as well because, you know, everybody can point the finger at things like water and government scale stuff. But the reality is like that's going to take a really huge amount of effort to sort of implement and to, to move even like the tiniest little bit on but there's so many little small things that you can help a community with that really do make a difference if you just sit down and listen and work with them so that was a really interesting experience like I actually love that a hell of a lot it was Mm, that sounds lush gosh I wish I was flying the wall for those yarns um, yeah it was super fun I'll talk to you offline about it like it'd be awesome to share that with you a bit I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Hey, Curly, it's almost time for our next catch up. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm going to put a pin in this for today, but I just want to say thank you so, so much for joining me on the show and having a good chat and sharing some of your experiences. And yeah, congratulations on your writing. It's beautiful. And I'm just so so damn stoked to be connected with you now and to to be able to watch your career and your little trajectory go so thanks again mm. for coming on the show which is is to walk and work together um it's a ganagara word on the land that raised me and i really like that idea of us continuing to walk and work together so um yeah we'll yarn soon beautiful all right for everybody thanks for listening and goodbye